Oh, welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web from leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by John Katruba. As ever, uh, listeners are invited to call the program at 412-268-9728 during the show if you want to uh, ask any questions or contribute to the program. You can also send, if you wish, a little more anonymity. You can send mail, to, electronic mail to bob at leftout.info, which we'll monitor during the program, or join the AOL chat room, Left Out, two words, uh, and uh, we can, uh, we can uh, also communicate with you there. So today on Left Out, if you'll excuse my, uh, I have a terribly bad cold, uh, so my uh, my voice is not the best, and I'll try to talk as little as possible, I think. Uh, but today uh, we're very honored to have uh, as a guest on on Left Out is uh, Robert Reich, who is currently the uh, professor of uh, the at the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley, and who was more well known for his role from 1993 to 1997 as the uh, Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, and these days is a frequent commentator. I, I hear him often on, uh, I think it's called Marketplace, a national public radio program. Uh, he has a regular comment. And he's written a new book um, called Super Capitalism, The Transformation of Business, Democracy, and Everyday Life, which attracted my interest and Danny's interest. And we uh, are happy to have uh, Secretary Reich on the radio with us today. Secretary Reich, are you there? No, we haven't, got, we haven't no, gotten him we in yet. No, him our producer okay. is telling him, telling us that he <laughs> oh. hasn't gotten him on the line. <laughs> okay. Well, he's well, that was a beautiful introduction, but, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, but to dead air. So it looks like our producer will be getting Secretary Reich on the air, and then we'll uh, come, back to that, uh, come back to that in a moment. So uh, I recommend that if you get a chance to have a look at, uh, at uh, Robert Reich's new book, have a look at it, and we'll talk about it in more detail a little bit later. Well, what, what do we want to talk about now? So I think uh, one thing I know, the issue that you have been uh, concerned about, which is very representative of the kind of issues we've often spoken about and left out, is the recent issue with uh, Joe Klein's coverage of the FISA bill uh, in Time magazine. So Joe Klein is a well-known journalist, been around for really decades, right. very prominent Washington inside the Beltway journalist, working currently for Time magazine, um, Was wrote an article about the... Uh, I think it still has not yet passed, as far as I know, the new FISA bill, the uh, Foreign Intelligence uh, Security Act, Act. Surveillance Act, excuse me. (coughs) Pardon me for my cough. And um, Danny, I know you were quite exercised about this. I wonder if you want want to summarize a bit what's going on there. uh, A few weeks ago, this uh, uh, Joel Klein wrote an article in Time Magazine. (coughs) Bless you. Uh, I wrote an article in Time Magazine about uh, this FISA bill and uh, basically claiming that it, it was going to basically give the terrorists the same uh, rights as, as American citizens and, um, and among, a, a number of other things in his, in his article, just scathingly critical of it, saying this is worse than stupid, uh, as he described the, Democrat, uh, the Democratic bill. Um, and um, the purpose of the bill was to fix some legitimate loopholes Having to do with uh, you know technicalities about would the U.S. be allowed to on the current of the current bill, the U.S. is not allowed to surveil conversations that go through switching stations uh, between a foreigner and a terrorist and one terrorist in a country and uh, offshore and another terrorist offshore if mm-hmm. it goes through a switching station in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to you know to listen to it. So it's a, kind of a loophole in the law. So they wanted to fix that. That's mm-hmm. fine. Okay, great. Uh, but but Joe Klein completely basically falsely represented what the bill was and, and um, wrote this article in Time magazine. And then um, the blogosphere got, got a hold of it, specifically Glenn Greenwald, and really um, went, after, um, went after Joe Klein, pointing all this stuff out. And Time magazine, and he, 
And then Joel Klein began to waffle and whiffle and back and forth and kind of respond, but never actually admitted the mistakes and um, ended up simply saying, well, I, um, I, I really don't have time or legal expertise to, to – to, I don't have the time or expertise to actually uh, comment on this. So it was a complete cop-out. And meanwhile, Time magazine actually refused to publish – Letters from Democratic uh, senators and congressmen uh, who, who who were creators of this bill, uh, they they rejected the letters. So they're just sitting on this completely false story, refusing to correct it, uh, and and uh, it, it's just totally a, it, grotesque. It's a good example of how things work. Actually, the thing that was most shocking was their unwillingness to really uh, own up to the error. It wasn't you know you would think it's a straightforward thing? Oh, we we regret the error. This is an incorrect statement. But it went through several rounds. So we'll come back to this uh, topic a little bit later. So as I mentioned to our listeners earlier, we're very honored today to have uh, as a guest on Left Out, uh, Robert Reich, who's currently professor at Berkeley, uh, public policy at Berkeley, and was best known for being former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration from 1993-1997. And he's written a new book called Super Capitalism, the Transformation, Transformation of Business, Democracy, and Everyday Life that uh, caught my eye and which I really very much enjoyed reading a few weeks ago. Secretary Reich, uh, welcome to Left Out. Well, thank you for inviting me. I wondered if you might start out. So you're speaking. Uh, I'm Bob Harper. I have a terrible cold. You can probably tell from the sound of my voice. And uh, just so you know, voices, Danny Slater, you spoke with earlier. Yes. Um, so. Hi, uh, Danny. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. So, you uh, have a cold, too? Nope. No, he will after the show. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad I'm doing this 3,000 miles away. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I wondered if you uh, might start out for, for the benefit of our listeners and summarize your, I think, very interesting book called Supercapitalism. Uh, well, actually, it, it started uh, a number of years ago when I uh, started asking myself, why was it that the number of lobbyists and the amount of money in Washington kept on going up, and America's, uh, uh, and the typical American's uh, confidence in government has been going down for 30 years? Uh, I served in the Clinton administration before that. I served in the Carter administration. I was briefly... Uh, in uh, the uh, Ford administration, and uh, I kind of witnessed the growth of lobbying, corporate lobbying, and corporate money in Washington. But at the same time, over the same 30-year interval, uh, the economy has become much more dynamic. Uh, goods and services, uh, many of them costing adjusted for inflation, less than they cost uh, 30 years ago. Uh, the quality and the speed of innovation, much, much greater than ever before. Uh, not only consumers doing well, but also investors. And notwithstanding the perturbations on Wall Street over the last six months, uh, if you compare uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, 20 years ago to what it is now, I mean, it's just there's no question that there's been a huge increase in the capitalization of the United States. And I ask myself, well, is there any relationship between these two trends? On the one side, a kind of decline in confidence in democracy and increase in the number of lobbyists, amount of money in Washington. And on the other side, uh, this much more dynamic economy for both consumers and investors. My answer was, yes, there is a, re a relationship, but not what the right or what the left of America normally thinks it is. Uh, the right says, well, the reason you have so many much more money in Washington is because you have that many more regulations, and obviously you have more lobbyists because you've got a much bigger government. Uh, the left says, well, the problem is uh, corporations are taking over American democracy, and it's a big conspiracy of global corporations. Actually, the book Supercapitalism is a, an attempt to refute both of those views, and uh, call for fundamental reform, but from the standpoint of understanding what is really happening. Corporations, 
uh, are not anything but pieces of paper. They're not human beings. They're not people. Uh, they're not either to be uh, extolled or to be condemned. Uh, what's happening is largely because we, as consumers and investors, have many more options than ever before, and we're putting greater and greater pressure on corporations to respond to us. But what is the causal, uh, the direction of causality there? I mean, is it uh, we, uh, which causes which? We have more options as a result of various corporatization trends of some kind. So that's you know that's a that's a good thing. Like we all like to get buy things for very cheap, right? We we all want we all want cheap goods. But on the other hand, um, you know, there's a lot of negative uh, negative consequences of that as well. And moreover, it's not clear to me which causes which. I mean, you, you presented it as if our consumerism has given rise to corporatism. Yeah. Actually, what I try to do in the book is trace exactly what the line of causation is. And I discovered that uh, really the most important agent of change has been technology. And most of those technologies grew out of uh, uh, both the Second World War and Vietnam. Uh, cargo ships, container ships, satellite communication technologies, uh, eventually the Internet. Uh, and those technologies empowered consumers and investors uh, to get better and better deals from all over the world. Uh, and it's that empowering of consumers and investors to get better and better deal deals that has put corporations under greater and greater competitive stress. No longer do we have the kind of system we had 40 years ago, 30 years ago, when big companies in industries like autos and telecommunications and steel and chemicals uh, were oligopolies. They didn't have much competition. If you wanted a, a telephone, you went to Ma Bell. That was basically it. If you wanted a car, it was the one of the big three. Uh, if you wanted a bank uh, or any place to park your money, uh, you went to one of uh, two or three banks in your in your town. Uh, no, what's happened is that communication and telecommunication technologies, transportation technologies, new uh, technologies leading right up to the Internet, right up to today, uh, have given consumers and investors far more power to get what they want. And that has had a kind of a, a flywheel effect. Uh, pushing corporations in a direction toward greater competition, reducing what uh, business uh, people call barriers to entry. Almost any company can get into any, others, any other one's business. Uh, this is all good for consumers. It's good for investors. But it also means that companies are competing with ever greater ferocity for political favors, for policies that favor them and hurt their competitors. In other words, supercapitalism has sloshed over into the political realm. Right. So that was, I thought, a very interesting chapter. Um, well, for, first of all, just to corroborate what you just said, I mean, we're all sort of I feel familiar with that way in which things sort of evolved. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the times, um, the way things worked before, where people were loyal to their companies. They, you got a career at a company like Westinghouse or, or a telephone company, and you spent your whole career there, and there were pensions, and there were... They, the companies were loyal to the, to the employees and vice versa. Um, that's all completely changed in, 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 in the way it works. Uh, it's just an example of what, what you just said. Um, but uh, in terms of, well, let's see, there's a lot of interesting things to, to talk about um, following from this. Well, first of all, let me just bring up a, well, okay, no. Let's talk about some examples. I thought there was a very interesting chapter in your book about the lobbying, um, the way lobbying goes on. 
and how Washington had evolved from being, you know, really poor place where there were uh, uh, cockroach-infested sandwich joints uh, near the Capitol to what it is now, which is just this glittering, you know, expensive place full of beautiful hotels and restaurants and stuff like that. Uh, is an example of a sort of the, the symptom of, of our consequences. Yes, and it's, happened, it, it's really happened very, very quickly. Um, Washington, when I first went there in the 1970s, was a kind of a seedy town. Uh, it wasn't very rich. Uh, the counties surrounding Washington were not particularly uh, wealthy. But right now, the six counties surrounding downtown metropolitan Washington are among the 20 wealthiest counties in the United States. Uh, all of that money, most of it corporate money, has boosted the incomes of uh, countless numbers of people, professionals, lawyers, uh, lobbyists, public relations professionals, communications professionals, people who are working directly or indirectly for corporations. So, I mean, you, you mentioned in the book a number of examples of lobbying fights that went on. And, and you point out that really, uh, although it isn't obvious immediately that the fights are really between different corporate interests, uh, they're not between the public interest and, the, and, 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 and some corporate interest, the, at least uh, the, the serious ones. Uh, for example, uh, you talked about the, um, well, there's an example of, there was a, the, uh, the uh, oil companies wanted to put oil wells off of uh, the coast of California and Florida. But uh, that was being blocked by non-environmentalists who had absolutely no power or, or anywhere near the influence to, to, to have any effect on this. But the, um, the travel and, and um, vacation industry, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's uh, one example I use. Uh, there are many others in the book. But, but what we seem, uh, or what seems to be uh, contests between corporations and the public interest very often in Washington, are actually contests between different uh, corporations or different industries. Uh, most of the warfare in Washington is not the public versus the corporation. It's different uh, segments of the private uh, corporate system or the uh, shareholder-driven corporate system, uh, different segments of corporations, different segments of industries, different corporations warring against each other with platoons of lobbyists, lawyers, and public relations professionals. And you see, it's, it's a kind of a uh, an arms race. I mean, the reason we are seeing, and we have seen over the last 30 years, this extraordinary increase uh, in lobbying and money in Washington is because uh, corporations are uh, racing against one another. Google, to take just one example, before 2004, it was not a public corporation. It almost never went to Washington. It had no representation in Washington. And then once Google went public, it hired a platoon of Washington lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations professionals. Why? Because its major competitors, uh, Microsoft and Yahoo and others, uh, had their own platoons in Washington. And Google, as a public company, knew that it had now a responsibility to its shareholders uh, to fight those others with regard to all sorts of policies, antitrust, uh, intellectual property, trade policies, which could be tipped in the direction that would favor either Microsoft or Yahoo or Google. Yeah, so one of the examples that Google was involved in was the, or cur it's currently ongoing, I, I believe, the, uh, the net neutrality fight. Uh, where where the idea is that that uh, net neutrality would require the providers of internet service to be neutral about the destination and source of data that's moving around the network and treat it all the same way, rather than being able to say, well, we're gonna we're gonna we don't like some some particular source and we're gonna make them pay more or or somehow un 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 in any other way bias the um, bias the flow of, of of information. Now, to me, it seems like a very 
something that we want as um, as citizens. We want be able to access, put anything we want up on the internet. Well, mm-hmm. modulo, you know, pornograph, pornography, or, or other other. Well, even pornography is up on the internet. Illegal things. Illegal things. But um, we want to be able to put it up and let anybody else see it. But it seems like that, to me, is at risk if net neutrality is, is stomped but, out. But, see, that's a good example. Net neutrality is a good example of what I'm talking about because it's not really uh, the kind of contest you're supposing between corporations on the one hand and average people who want to put things on the net on the other hand. It's actually a contest between two sets of companies. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the telephone companies and the cable companies. Uh, and they don't want to bear the expense of adding new Internet uh, infrastructure uh, that are being used by the other set of companies that actually want the phone companies and the cable companies to bear that financial responsibility. And those other companies are the big uh, users. They're Google and eBay and the ones that uh, actually are putting huge amounts of stuff on the Internet. And the question that is in the air in Washington is who is going to pay, yeah, good. at least in the first instance, for all of this new infrastructure? Uh, the public is, is kind of a sideshow. I mean, ultimately, the public will pay somehow through taxes or through uh, charges in phones or in cable or in eBay or in Google. But uh, the question is, which set of companies is going to bear the initial cost? <clears throat> well, uh, maybe the initial cost, uh, it, it, but I don't think that's that's the entire issue. I'm not sure I agree with you. Because, yes, it's true, uh, there is a question of who's going to pay, but um, if we reduce the question to one where we're nothing but consumers and there's no other interest, no public interest, other than just the economic interest of these companies battling it out, and we just watch on the sidelines, I mean, I think we've lost something very important, haven't we? Oh, that's exactly the point of the book. Okay, good. I mean, in other words, <laughs> right. I'm, not, I'm, I'm explaining, I'm not right. justifying. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. I, in fact, I, uh, in the book, uh, once again and again and again, I, I warn the readers, this is an explanation. This is not a justification. This is not the way it should be. Right, in fact, so. what we need to do is get our democracy back. Yeah, but a- the only way we can do that is if we understand what's really happening. And we understand that the kind of mythologies that we have in our heads, the left and the right mythology, uh, really don't uh, don't hold water. They're just not yeah. accurate. They, they're not. We can't reform anything if we don't know how reality works. And it's a kind of misdiagnosis. Yeah. I was sort of leading you to your chapter four, which is called Democracy Overwhelmed. And so maybe there's a good opportunity to uh, go into this this section. Well, we've been talking about that with the uh, yeah. The, well, with the with the and the following section, politics diverted. Politics diverted, yeah. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's very important for uh, citizens uh, to understand uh, that. Uh, politics is being overwhelmed by corporations right now, not because corporations are conspiring, but because there's an arms race. In fact, a lot of CEOs would rather not pay all this money to lobbyists and to public relations professionals and to lawyers in Washington, uh, but they feel like they're in a little bit of a protection racket. They have to do it because the lobbyists are demanding it. Uh, the last major campaign finance reform that was on the uh, voted upon, which was McCain-Feingold, you got you had a lot of CEOs through the Committee for Economic Development, uh, actually in favor of that campaign finance reform because they didn't want to shell out all this money for this protection racket. Uh, That's the good news. In other words, if we can get a citizen's movement to take back democracy, reduce lobbying, reduce money in Washington, there's a possibility we can get corporate executives with us because they have an interest in mutual de-escalation with regard to this silly arms race. Uh, I go on in the book to argue that the whole notion of corporate social responsibility is a little bit of a distraction from all this, because it leads people to think that somehow corporations are people, uh, that they are moral or can be moral. 
But if you followed my argument, we have so much intense competition today that companies cannot, they cannot sacrifice shareholder returns or good deals for consumers for the sake of some notion of what is good for the public. They will not do that. They cannot do that. Uh, they'll yeah. only do something that is uh, perhaps improves their image, that's good for public relations, but that can't be counted on. Yeah. A corporate social responsibility cannot really be counted on as a substitute for what we have got to do through democracy. Yeah, I thought that was a... a, a well, when I first saw Mike, Michael Moore's film, Roger and Me, um, I, I, he showed all the terrible consequences of GM closing those plants in Flint, Michigan, and then he was trying to track down Roger Smith, the CEO... And, of, and kind emphasize of, the heartlessness of it. The heartlessness yeah. of it and stuff like that. But what struck me... Uh, about that movie was that well what was roger smith supposed to do in the in the in it, it, it's not, because he had to compete and build cars cheaply he had to be exactly. competing with his international other, other companies so he, he and, and and michael moore never actually dealt with that at all so i thought it was a very flawed movie but I, not to, to bash Michael Moore because I, his most recent movie Sicko is is as a masterpiece. We'll come um, back to that. And uh, so that, that I don't want. I, I really really respect him, especially for that film. But, but you see, there's so much propaganda on the left and the right about uh, about good corporations, bad corporations. I mean, uh, people come to me and they say, "Oh, Walmart is terrible, but uh, Starbucks and Ben and Jerry's are wonderful." <laughs> well, that's just baloney. I mean, Walmart is doing what it has to do. Uh, now, I don't. I do blame. Walmart, if it's illegal, if it's acting illegally, I would blame its executives, and I'd throw the book at them. Uh, but in terms of what basically it does in terms of low wages and not providing health care, uh, Walmart has a business model that is providing very low-priced goods to a lot of people in America who want low-priced goods and who need low-priced goods. Uh, you know, Ben & Jerry's, why are they so... They're not socially responsible. I mean, they're selling ice cream that clogs our veins and arteries, that is bad for us. Uh, and, and, and Starbucks, I mean, Starbucks has uh, violations of the National Labor Relations Board uh, pending. Uh, it is hardly uh, a, a, an angelic company. All these companies, all they want to do, all they need to do, all they can do is maximize shareholder returns. And that's a very important important uh, principle that people have got to understand. But I think there are there are good companies. There are better and worse companies. I mean, for example, what was the name of the CEO of the Body Work, the, bo the Body Shop? Uh, 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 yeah, Nita the, Broderick. Well, right, and she, she really did some great things in, in the industry, but eventually she was forced out for the reasons that you describe in, I mean, I think, you see, in your book. That's my point. Of yeah. course she's forced out. I mean, publicly held companies are not going to allow CEOs, whoever they are, uh, to spend shareholder money doing things that are not going to maximize shareholder returns. And so those people, like Anita Broderick, are, are, they're going to be forced out. Uh, and this is not because they're bad or good, and it's not because companies are bad or good. It's because shareholders and consumers want the best possible deals. So I, I, I think it's a great kind of philosophical change in the way we look at corporations to start thinking about companies in the way that you've elucidated so, uh, just um, to give well, you, i just would give one example of that was something i've been thinking about we've talked about here on left out very often is the whole situation in in the news media and if you start thinking about news as a product of corporations um you suddenly realize form of that entertainment <laughs> it's a form of entertainment a form of, it's a money-making uh, venture uh that, that it doesn't it's a completely Opposite or antithetical, or not antithetical, but not not aligned with Good. what we need is as as 
citizens of a democracy, the kind of yeah. news, the kind of information, the myth-busting, all, all the stuff we need to be able to actually, you know, uh, vote and, 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 and run well, a democracy. That, I, see it, I think at the, at the core, what I've tried to do is make an argument for why... We are not just citizens, uh, I, I'm sorry, we're not just consumers and investors, we're also citizens. Uh, but we practice being consumers and we practice being investors, but we don't practice enough being citizens. Uh, we have got to take our democracy back. There's nobody else who's going to do it for us. Uh, we've got to have a movement that is directed toward uh, enriching and improving and making our democracy work once again. Uh, all of us who are involved in the environmental movement or uh, public health or trying to get national health care, uh, all of us who are worried about Iraq, all of us who are uh, involved in whatever way we are have got to join together uh, to get our democracy back because nothing else is going to work unless we do that first. Right. So, uh, uh, Dan ahead. and Bob, let me just say, I, I uh, am going to have to leave you, uh, unfortunately, because I have two fabulous students here sitting here in front okay. of you waiting for me. <laughs> okay. uh, but look, I want to thank you for uh, for taking having me on your show and taking the time. Okay, we'll continue to talk about your book uh, after you've uh, after you've rung off, but thank you very much, Secretary Reich, for, for calling us, and uh, uh, thanks for being on Left Out this evening. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, then. Bye. Well, that was, uh, that was Robert Reich, uh, who is the former uh, Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, who's written a new book called Supercapitalism. And I want to continue to talk about some of the topics I was just going to ask him about, uh, uh, some, some issues, which is, uh, of course, one of the things he's he's saying is that well, it's 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 certainly true that the, as we all know that the co- uh, corporations are you know spending enormous amounts of money in lobbying, and you could say you could justify that on the grounds that well, they're doing what's in their interest, so they're kind of the uh, you know the raptors of the uh, of the economic sphere, and they're they're doing everything that they need to do. But what effective means? I mean, it's nice at the end, uh, uh, Secretary Reich was saying, well, a kind of a kumbaya moment. I thought we should all join together and do something about this, which is all well and good. But it's not very clear to me how you oppose. I mean, the thing we've often complained about and left out is, and, and lamented about is the when you have tremendous amounts of money, and it seems to be ever-increasing, exponentially increasing concentration of money, that that's con- blatantly, obviously, controlling the government. The, it's, a, the, it's, it's, a, it's particularly egregious with the uh, Bush administration. But, you know, the Clinton administration, of which uh, Professor Reich was, the, was a part, was not you know, dramatically different in this respect, uh, is is really beholden to the corporate interests, and it seems to me almost impossible to to break that break that lock. I mean, how do you how do you have some means at this stage of the game of effectively fighting back, Danny? Well, um, we didn't get a chance to really ask him that. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't realize he was going to jump we, off so yeah, quickly. But well, uh, there you go. One of the, so we can talk about some some part some parts uh, in the book. Uh, <coughs> He wants us to stop viewing corporations as 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 people, right? And the stop answer, talking, and acting as though they ought to do something because you know good people would do such things, right? Um, so that's saying, okay. One, so one let's aspect, recognize them for being being the psychopaths that they are. So they're sort of legally constructed psychopathic entities. That's a part of the thesis of a movie, a documentary called The Corporation, which I saw a year or two ago. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So he wants to eliminate the corporate income tax because there's this notion that. Uh, if you pay tax, there's no, no no taxation without representation. The converse of that is that taxation is, gives you representation, right? Um, and instead, make the owners of the company pay tax on on the pay tax uh, on the earnings of the, the company, earnings, right? Um, the thing is, I'm not sure um, what uh, what 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 the consequence of that would be. I don't really understand why that would be. Uh, that's why we need 
Robert Reich on to answer the question. Um, <clears throat> right. I think that's that's a. I saw that. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to talk ask him about that. So that's a that's a concern of mine. I don't feel like uh, that he offered when I read his book. I don't feel like he offered. Uh, so many solutions as he did explanations, you might say. So he's giving us a framework, which is the framework that's in many ways familiar from the Clinton administration and sort of says, well, don't expect companies to do anything differently. But how, you know, look at what look at what we're facing. I mean, for example, I was about to ask um, about uh, medical care. So one thing that has gone on in the history of the country is um, – it used to be the old model, as it were. People even refer to it now as the old model. Was the expectation was that companies would provide for the medical care of their employees, right? So the standard thing is you get a good job which has benefits, right? That's the main thing in the United States you have to worry about. And um, but we have a curious situation because the companies and the money interests fight against the nationalization of this. For example, the proposals have been made by uh, many people um, uh, for having a. For example, a single-payer uh, insurance scheme, kind of a, you might say, a universal Medicare system, you would think would be in corporate interest because, after all, it alleviates them the burden of having to pay uh, health insurance costs, which are always on the rise for their own reasons. We could talk about those are also corporations that are working uh, working there. But the uh, – uh, uh, and, and yet – so you would imagine, you know, he was saying earlier, oh, you know, these companies uh, view the, the current political situation as a protection racket and they don't want to pay that money. They're happy to have ca- campaign finance. You know, I, to be honest, I, I didn't get a chance to contest this with him, but, you know, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that at all. And why don't I believe it? Well, because I just look around me and see what they actually do. You know, they may moan about this, but they seem to be, uh, they don't, they seem to be stepping up quite yeah. aggressively. Or, but going back to the healthcare, you know, the moneyed interest, the corporate interest are fighting, like, are fighting against, you know, the, uh, any kind of idea, for example, of a single health payer, single payer insurance scheme. You know, Giuliani, for example, and the GOP misrepresents it as socialized medicine and he's against socialized medicine. I feel like, you know, the right response to him is, yeah, we're all against socialized medicine. So what? You know, it's got nothing to do with what is being discussed here. Yeah. Another it's thing that, phony. another big difference mm-hmm. between the old model, uh, he calls it the <clears throat> not quite gilded age. Yeah. Uh, right. Versus the new model of super capitalism is that companies would, for example, have pension plans mm-hmm. and they would basically, it was like a social security, you just, you work for the company for some number of years uh, and then retire, uh, the company will continue to pay some fraction of your salary for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just a, a, a situation where you put money into a 401k where you put over the years some amount of money and the company contributes some amount of money <coughs> and then when you retire, that money is a fixed amount which you then deplete until it runs out. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if you die first, you're lucky, but if it runs out first, you're in trouble. Yeah, big trouble. So um, th- those types of pension plans have, are being um, phased out also. But it seems to me to make perfect sense to and the, yeah, remove that notion from, corpor- from corporate responsibility but, as, as well as move health care from social, so corporate responsibility but, and make it a government program. Yeah, but that's the part, right, is they want to get rid of, for example, these pension programs, but they also want to do away with Social Security. So it's ludicrous, right? Or they want right. to turn it into, uh, you know, some investment scheme, some big, uh, you know, mutual fund operation, and we should all, you know, give our money to private corporations like, I don't know, Fidelity or someone like that. Uh, because they can make a lot of money on that and, you know, and get, get rid of Social Security. Of course, there are many problems with this, not least of which is it, Social Security is not an investment scheme. It's an insurance scheme. It, and it's not merely just a pension, you know, pension system, but they're trying to misrepresent it in this manner. It goes on. So, you know, so Secretary Reich's position, that's a pity that we didn't have a bit more time with him because I would much prefer to contest it with him uh, face-to-face, so to speak, or voice-to-voice. Um, but the... But the um, 
uh, I'm not I'm not so sure that uh, that I don't I don't see that it really is working out that way at all. Another thing that goes on is uh, he was mentioning, well, you know, uh, if I may paraphrase, um, well, you know, the poor companies, you know, you can't uh, can't blame them for trying to make money by any means possible. And in a certain way, there is a kind of a fairness argument, if you will. You know, you can kind of say, well, their business is to make money. Our business is to put together a good society, you know, let the best man win kind of thing. Well, you know, that seems kind of nice. But the thing is, you know, when you look in some way, some kind of clean analysis of what's going on, but when you look at it, <clears throat> from another point of view, I mean, one reason that people object is, you know, oh, so they cut prices. Yes, they do cut prices, you know. But it's also true that, for example, the Waltons are amongst the richest people in America by a vast margin, right? They're vastly wealthy. Or if you right. look at the CEO, we've talked before, like with Bogle a couple of weeks ago, uh, about CEO salaries, for example. Or, there's, you know, it goes on and on. There's a long list of things where things like the uh, – and the way that feeds into government policies like the capital gains rates and so on. It's really that, you know, it's not merely like, oh, you know, we're benefiting, you know, we're all just happy consumers and we're benefiting and the companies are making all the money that, that they could want and that's that. It's not really like that. It's, it's really, you know, this money is going into the pockets uh, at an outrageous rate. In other words, there's a greed factor yeah. that is dominating society. Yeah, so that was another uh, point that actually I, was, uh, I, I w- might have brought up with, uh, <clears throat> with, with Reich. Um, that he in one one part of his book, it's just a small tangent, but he says that he feels the CEO salaries are worth it. They're they're justified on the basis of the skill sets and um, the, the the difficulty of the job. Um, I, I'm not convinced. It really <laughs> Baloney con- contradicts. It contradicts what Bogle said uh, a couple of weeks ago on our show and in his book, um, the, the Battle for the Soul of Capitalism, that we talked right. about a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I think the overall thrust, I think, of of the book uh, is. Righteous book is, now is accurate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, although, uh, well, it's I don't refreshing know. I mean, like, to see a kind of somewhat, uh, somewhat bloodless analysis of what yeah. is going on. Right. Well, he t- has t- a sort of crisp analysis of many. T- take a look at, at Walmart. One one example of what they do. So Walmart, um, you know, given the the immense uh, you know so, uh, source of sales that they are, a lot of companies cannot afford not to be in Walmart. So there was an example in um, Byron Dorgan's book, "Ship This, Take This Job and Ship It." Of mm-hmm. uh, Etch-a-Sketch co- Company, which is Ohio, Ohio Arts, Ohio Arts yeah. which makes Etch-a-Sketch, uh, and they were based in Ohio, and they, for you know, for decades, they made this really great toy called the Etch-a-Sketch that everyone and knows, that everyone knows, and had had <laughs> when they were kids. Um, Walmart went to them someday and said, "Well, you want to be in, in Walmart, right?" They said, "Of course." They said, "Well, you've got to uh, cut your." I forgot. I don't know the exact detail of the price, but let's say it was selling for ten dollars in a typical store, and they were uh, sell, they were selling it wholesale for like seven dollars. Walmart said, "Okay, well, fine, but you got to sell it to us for three dollars, and we'll sell it for seven dollars, or something, or five dollars." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they and so they sat there, looked at their production setup, and they said, "This impo- it's impossible for us to produce this toy in Ohio for." For three dollars or whatever the price was that they demanded they, that they give it to them for, it's just it's it's just financially impossible. So they shut down their factory in Ohio and built a factory somewhere else, and just destroyed all those jobs. Probably their stable job outside for, outside the U.S. Probably right? outside the U.S. So yeah. now, I mean, yeah, it's, so it's, it's, a legal, so it's a legal, it's a legal, yeah. right? It's a legal thing for them to do, mm-hmm. um, for Walmart to it do. Certainly is, yeah. um, but it's the net result is is this, but also. We didn't get into it with 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 um, Secretary Reich, but I mean this whole issue of trade, whether the trade pot. Well, of course, 
during Clinton we had NAFTA, and there's been an immense amount of criticism of NAFTA. And it seems like one one way out of this this problem of, of the race to the bottom that we're having is to relook at the whole trade system. Yes, know. exactly. And the and the and, and moreover, I would say look at the the unstated assumptions that seem to pervade all all discussion of economic issues in the US these days which is really our role as consumers you know this is a famous line from Bush after the 911 attacks that we should all go out and shop you know our role as consumers to shut up you know and uh, and take what we take what we get and uh, and so things like NAFTA, I mean, people are, there is a little bit of pushback, but not enough that I can see that there would be any change there. And yet the result has been, you know, really devastating, particularly for the working class in America. And I think the overall, you know, the thing that is, as we know from computer science, doing the locally optimal thing, doing what's best for each individual company is certainly not going to lead in general to the globally optimal outcome. It's the well-known tragedy of the commons in the economic literature. And and so we have we have uh, we have to have a situation of, of opposing that. But now back to my other point, which is the way in which the business interests and the Republican Party in particular fights viciously against regulation. Right, any kind of government regulation of anything. You know, you can just turn on the radio, AM radio, any time of the day, and you know, hear some kook going on who is you know paid for by some big corporation. Hear some kook ranting and raving about you know regulations. Of course, you know the regulatory agencies and the government have been decimated by the Bush administration is hardly a factor. Right, right. Okay, you know, it's like how this goes back to how are we supposed to defend ourselves, you know, because they have bought the politicians. The politicians are in their pocket. The system is organized that way. The amounts of money involved are so astronomical. It doesn't matter how many of us gang together and contribute, how much money we have. We can't approximate the influence that's wielded. And so I think it's, um, I find it to be a kind of a desperate situation. So while while Secretary Reich's analysis in many respects I think is probably quite accurate, I don't see that he's offering us a real uh, a, a solution, a path to or, toward changing these things. And I found that in general with the Clinton administration, although I generally felt the Clinton administration was more in line with my value system in practice, what they actually did, and Robert Reich was part of that, was, you know, was not very much. I mean, they pretty much cave in, you know, and pretty much given. In fact, pushed through NAFTA, and that was a big, yeah. big gift without any consideration to the fact that you know the world is not a level playing field. And uh, what you're doing is, uh, you know, uh, fostering a race to the bottom, and it just doesn't seem uh, reasonable to me. So uh, if you'd like to give us a call, the number is 412-268-9728. And, um, Maybe we should take a brief break, particularly since my voice is, uh, is so strained today from my cold. Uh, we'll take a brief, brief musical break, and we'll come back. We have a bunch of other uh, topics to discuss. Welcome back to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and broadcasting, podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. 
Uh, this is, uh, we've been talking in the previous uh, segment of the program, we were talking to uh, uh, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich and his book, Supercapitalism. Um, and we, um, if listeners uh, are, are, are certainly welcome to call the program at uh, 412-268-9728. Maybe you have a comment about Reich's book or his appearance or to send mail to bobleft.info or join our AOL chat room, Left Out Two Words, uh, and we can uh, get uh, take comments from, uh, from you that way. Well, right before Secretary Reich came uh, came on the air, we were talking about this uh, uh, issue with Joe Klein in Time Magazine, which is a nice worked example of uh, of how uh, of how the Republican control over the news. Where we have uh, Joe Klein, you know, the Democratic Party's worst enemy. He's uh, supposedly a Democrat, um, constantly uh, going on and on about the lunatic uh, lunatic left and so on. He's like Bill O'Reilly's uh, right hand man. Um, misrepresenting the FISA bill, and it turns out that right before we uh, right before we got uh, we we went to talk with Secretary Reich, we um, <coughs> excuse me for my cough. Um, we were uh, wanted to mention that Time Magazine claims that this week that they will after we, after a couple of weeks of uh, really a a big uh, firestorm on the uh, in the. Uh, on the net, uh, publish a, a letter from, I think it was John Conyers who was going to clarify the truth. But the point is, is that it's in plain English. Uh, Grant, Glenn Greenwald has really been, of uh, Salon.com has been very upstanding on presenting this issue. He, he looked at the, the excerpt of the FISA bill. It, it absolutely, in the plainest possible language, says that there is no requirement that for foreign, you know, foreign surveillance uh, that there be any kind of oversight or any kind of you know right. uh, process of going through the courts or getting a warrant or anything like that in absolutely plain as day English and Joe Klein either didn't bother to read it because he couldn't be bothered or was you know willfully misrepresenting it and in fact it later came out that his source on this was a Republican uh, a congressman uh, oh I can't remember his name right now um, so it's like he's a tool of the GOP it seems to me. So speaking of tools of the GOP, that would uh, that would brings up the Democratic Party. Uh, I know that some of our left out listeners are uh, very, been very critical of us recently by electronic mail about uh, criticizing excessively the Democratic Party because, uh, like, who else are we going to go to? But uh, the, those criticisms notwithstanding, I want to uh, mention uh, many of our listeners will uh, know about, or maybe you haven't, is um, a recent. Uh, Revelation that came out, which explains quite a lot of things, was in the Washington Post earlier this on Sunday, December 9th, uh, called Hill briefed on waterboarding in 2002. In meetings, spy panels chiefs did not protest, officials say. And in fact, this morning I heard Bob Graham interviewed on National Pentagon Radio, National Public Radio, uh, who was a former uh, former uh, senator from Florida who was on the Intelligence Committee, uh, saying the most preposterous things. I, I, I wanted to like smash my radio. Uh, this well, he's morning. a Democrat. And he's a Democrat. Yes, he's a Democrat. I was talking about tools of the GOP. So that would include the Democratic Party. So one of the things we've often spoken about and left out is uh, the apparent collusion of the Democrats, not merely their inability to provide a significant opposition to the policies of the Bush administration on matters from the war to health insurance, whatever it comes up, but really what seems like an act of collusion. I mean, this is the thing that has really gotten me. And there's all this whining about, oh, you know, uh, Bush might veto our bill. Oh, my God, we can't allow that. We wouldn't be able to override his veto. Oh, and, and, and all sorts of, you know, crybaby stuff. And, well, what did Graham say? Uh, and, well, what, I'll what get to that in a moment. Okay. I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll get there. <laughs> I'm uh, rambling on. You're telling me to keep get to the point. All right, I'll get to the point. 
So the point is, is that uh, we've often observed co- active collusion, it seems to me, with the Democratic Party and many of these policies, because the rate, rate in which they came in seems uh, outrageous to me and just inexplicable given the political circumstances, as we mentioned before, with Feinstein and Schumer going ahead with uh, the Attorney General Mukasey's, uh, you know, uh, nomination as Attorney right, General. It's right. ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. But anyway, setting that aside. So here, lo and behold, so now it's come out that the CIA has destroyed evidence in what could very well be a criminal prosecution for a violation of, of U.S. and international law. That is, treaties to which we are, uh, we are signatories, for which are the law of the land by our Constitution uh, against torture, has destroyed evidence in 2005. Although, uh, I'll mention that it's also not completely clear that they've destroyed that evidence because there's some inconsistencies in this story, but we'll come back to that. So, uh, so the issue of torturing has come, uh, come uh, up again. And we've wondered all the way along, you know, why has this, uh, you know, why have there, there been such mild, uh, you know, a treatment of this issue from the Democrats? Well, it emerges. In September 2002, four members of Congress met in secret for a first look at a unique, uh, supposedly, CIA program designed to wring vital information from reticent terrorism suspects in U.S. custody for more than an hour. The bipartisan group, which included House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and I will jump ahead here, uh, Representative Jane Harman, Senators Bob Graham and John D. Rockefeller, all Democrats. Representative Porter Goss, who's a Republican, later became the director of Central, the director of Central Intelligence, and Senator Pat Roberts, uh, who's a uh, well-known Republican Whig nut from Kansas, uh, were were present at this meeting, in which they were given a tour of the CIA's detention sites overseas and exactly told what the harsh interrogation techniques that they uh, in, intended to use. And not only did none of these clowns uh, object to any of these procedures because they're illegal, but they were actually asking them whether the methods were tough enough. Okay, so it's, so what we have here is, in, is in, if you look at it, from there's a number of angles from which to look at this, one of which is obviously the Bush administration knows they have these guys over a barrel. So as I was saying in the beginning uh, earlier, a little bit earlier, you know, this, this kind of thing explains a lot, right? The Democrats are in on this. They've been colluded on this, right? Oh, we're not supposed to criticize the Democratic Party. Well, these Democratic leadership, right, uh, Pelosi amongst them, was in there and never said a word, never raised any objection, never any consideration of the legal matters. And now Graham this morning and others as well have been pleading, uh, saying, oh, well, you know, when you're on the Intelligence Committee, you're not allowed to disclose anything you've seen. Fine. You don't have to disclose anything you've seen. You can, you can report, you can come back out of that press, out of that briefing, and say, you know, we're the Senate Intelligence Committee. We are legally uh, bound to uh, exercise oversight over the CIA. In mm-hmm. our opinion, there may be some illegal activities going on here. We can't disclose the nature of them, what they are, but we want them investigated. Why can't they not do that? Why can they not have uh, initiate some kind of investigation? It's nonsense the way that they claim that. Oh, there's nothing we could have done about it. So that was what Graham. The gist. I don't have quotations from him, but the gist of what he was saying on radio this morning was. Oh, you know, when you're on the oversight board, you know, you, you, you don't know anything. You, they're just representatives or just congressmen or senators. They don't know anything about these things. And then they're supposed to be exercising oversight, he was saying. And so, you know, you can't really expect them to exercise oversight. I mean, it, it's only their job to exercise oversight. What do, what do you think? It, it's completely, yeah. right. outrageously, outrageously irresponsible. And these are the Democrats we're talking to. We're talking about Bob Graham, who was in the Senate from Florida, I don't know, forever, probably yeah, since the think, Lincoln administration it, or something. Don't you think it's part of the 9-11 syndrome where, where this was in 2002, right? right? Not that long after 9-11. Yeah. That, you know, we must... Uh, <coughs> 
overthrow, you know, bend all rules uh, and, and conventions for, uh, you know. Well, my point is, is that is that the Democrats were obviously in collusion with all of this. And then this explains a lot, for example, why they wouldn't hold Mukasey's feet to the fire. Because they're who was sitting there, uh, Harmon and Rockefeller, you know, have been have been part of this thing. It's uh, it's incredible. And the fact is, you know, the laws are the laws, you know, if uh, just because, uh, you know, just because there, there's been a major crime committed, you know, that I find it outrageous the way we way we act as if uh, uh, the way we act as if, you know, we've been under some ex- uh, uh, unbelievable threat, you know, to our very existence of our society right. since 2001, which is ludicrous. I mean, you could you could actually argue that in the, uh, you know, 19 uh, in the post-war period, in the Cold War period, when we had uh, nuclear weaponry aimed at each other between Soviet Union and the U.S., I would say, actually, that was a pretty credible threat to the existence of our society, because if we had gone away with a nuclear war, that would have, that would definitely have been it. But for a major crime, like a stupendous crime, the crime of the century, the crime of the millennium, you might even say, killing, killing at least of a certain category, killing, you know, 3,000 people in one sweep is a stupendous crime, but it, and, and it should be prosecuted as such, but... <laughs> It didn't threaten the existence of society, and it certainly doesn't license us to throw out the Constitution, put in a dictator. You know, Dick Cheney can do whatever the hell he wants. Uh, fear, 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 fear. Right. Well, so, was, uh, so your argument that yeah. uh, they should be excused, if I put words in your mouth, they should be excused for this, I think, is uh, is totally unacceptable, in my, my opinion. Yeah. Well, there was a show on Democracy Now! This is kind of peripheral, but uh, Amy Goodman interviewed... Um, Jonathan Shell, who's a big anti-nuclear advocate and right. writer, mm-hmm. and uh, talking about, well, if this is what happened in 9-11, if there was a nuclear explosion somewhere, it oh. would be the end of the country. It would be, be the it end of the be, country. Would, no, would, I, I, I did hear be, that myself, yeah. yeah. That, I would say, he's, he's absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, it disgusts me and scares me, to be honest, to say it, but... <coughs> I, I would I would say he's absolutely right because look look at the way the country behaved. Now it's clear that part of this is a grotesque failure of leadership. Can you imagine? I mean, think about this. If you were just like sitting back imagining a scenario that hadn't happened, but just pretending, you know, and you imagine a scenario where the leadership of the country that become a bunch of pantyways who go around, uh, who go around, you know, talking about fear all the time and having to protect us and that, uh-huh. you know, coming up with these ludicrous job descriptions like, you know, Bush's uh, daddy role is to protect us. It's not his role. He's sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, plain English. It's uh, that's that's what his job is. The job description. Well, they changed is not the job ambiguous. description. That, that was that was one of Klein's. That was a, that was one of the errors in Klein's article. Actually, was it really? Oh, yes, supposed, right. it was yes, supposed, quite right. It was supposed to protect and uphold the United States and uh, against uh, all and, enemies, domestic and private, which comes from a completely different give, context. Right, a different oath, a military oath, the versus, military versus oath, yeah. uh, the presidential oath. So he was even misquoting the the presidential oath. In Can that you article. believe it? And this is a professional journalist who doesn't even know what the official job description of the president of the United States is. I mean, it's not so hard. You know, it's one well, sentence. Well, somebody told him it's that. It's one didn't check, sentence. He didn't check, check yeah, up on it. Yeah, but it's... It. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm completely <laughs> you, dumbfounded, you know? Did you want to uh, talk about the Krugman thing? Yeah. Uh, oh, so Paul Krugman had a good column this week in which he was talking about what's really going on with the uh, the mortgage bailout. So, uh, okay, leaving aside our... Uh, our, our world affairs we can well it is world affairs after all but anyway got turning to economic matters uh yeah we all know that there is we're in the middle of a big uh 
market meltdown in the housing market caused by, well, combinations of fraud, uh, reckless behavior, irresponsibility, lack of regulation, uh, goes on and on and on. Of course, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, who's going to be left holding the bag here. It's exactly like the, uh, the savings and loan scandal, only far worse, but the savings and loan scandal from approximately 20 years ago, in which, you know, who bailed it out? Oh, the good old taxpayer. Who were the, one of the chief, uh, who was one of the chief uh, fraudsters in that whole thing? Neil Bush, of course, another member of the Bush family from Silverado <laughs> Savings and that. Loan. Yes, of course. Yes, and he got he got his butt bailed out by daddy uh, as a result of this fraudulent banking. Well, we're in another round of fraudulent banking where uh, loads of things have been going on. We don't have time remaining today to talk about in detail. But uh, one of the things that you might have interested you if you were half awake, you might have thought, well, suddenly Paulson, the uh, who is the... Uh, 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 Henry Paulson, who was the Secretary of Treasury, announced his bailout plan. And if you're, you know, not really paying attention, you've got other things on your mind, as you surely do, you know, you just think, oh, well, you know, that sounds good, sounds like a reasonable thing. But then you just say, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. This is the Bush administration. What are we talking about? They're not bailing out the average uh, mortgage holder who's been victimized. There's no way that this could be true. So uh, Paul Krugman actually points out what's really going on here, and it makes a heck of a lot more sense than the than the uh, than the naive story. So it's kind of funny. His opening paragraph is very amusing. He says, "By Bush administration standards, Henry Paulson, Treasury Secretary, is a good guy. He isn't conspicuously incompetent, and he isn't trying to mislead us into war, justify torture, or protect corrupt contractors." So there's that much to be said for him, I guess. You know, we have to give Krugman. I mean, he's not totally negative about the Democratic Party. Though, so some of our listeners will prefer Paul Krugman's uh, point of view to about the Democratic Party to ours uh, because he's not utterly negative. Uh, but the point is, is that uh, anyway, he uh, goes on to explain what's really going on here, and you could just guess it. So the number of people who are going to benefit from this bailout fund is minuscule, and the criterion are ridiculous. What's really going on here, there are two issues going on, but the main one is is to head off a proposal by Barney Frank, who is a congressman, many, many-year congressman from Massachusetts, who has a bill pending um, uh, is uh, is uh, uh, has I have a note here, but I will uh, wait a second here. Uh, uh, wait a second here. Uh, but uh, going going on, sorry, uh, with Barney Frank uh, has a, a bill to actually bail out the average person, and Barney Frank is a congressman who would definitely be doing an honest job. And what they're really trying to do is uh, undermine that effort by saying, "Well, we've taken care of this. This problem is completely solved." Moreover, there's another issue going on which has to do with the legal liabilities. If there's, it turns out that many of these loans were written under fraudulent circumstances, and there's quite a lot of evidence that there is, but hasn't been proved yet. In particular, many people who are, they're taking advantage of the ignorance of many people by uh, getting them into these ridiculous subprime loans when, in fact, their circumstances and credit rating would qualify them for a, for a good loan, standard, a real standard loan. mortgage. Yeah. Okay, this is a just like rapacious capitalism, you know, Secretary Reich notwithstanding. This is a situation like this is what is really going on in the world, and we don't have any defense against it. And so what's happened is, uh, you know, a lot of people are getting screwed big So time. what does Barney Frank want? I missed that. What, what so, does he want to do? Uh, Banks, uh, Frank's bill, I don't, have it, I don't have it in front of me, but is uh, if I can have a look at it, is a, uh, is a uh, bailout plan that would apply to the uh, average homeowner and not just be, I don't, I don't have it uh, exactly right in front of me. 
uh, oh, is that it give judges in ba- oh yeah, that's right. He was wants to give judges in bankruptcy cases the ability to rewrite mortgage loan terms. Okay, so that's the idea. Yeah. So if the loan terms are judged to be to be you know unreasonable in one way or another, he can rewrite them. So right. Now what I heard about this the scandal, yeah. which hasn't been reported very much, and and maybe, it, but but I have read it. I think Greg Palast pointed this out, which is that. Uh, the system is set up in such a way that there are certain people who stand to benefit from the default of these mortgages. Oh, yeah. So if it turns out that somebody gets one of these mortgages, they jack up the interest payments, the person says, I can't pay for it, uh, it and can go, 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 to, go to them and say, look, this is my salary, this is my savings, I, I simply can't pay for this, give me different terms, uh, they could either foreclose it and take the house and sell it at a huge loss because they're, the market's probably not very good at that point in those locations, or they could let him go to a better terms in the mortgage and continue to own the house and pay it off at a, a slower rate or more years or whatever. Um, but it's, it turns out that it's to their interest, the way they've structured things, mm. to actually force the foreclosure. I see. So that's, yeah. that's according to Greg Palace. That that's, that's the way these, these, these structures are created, these instruments. So Krugman's column this past Monday, I think it was, has a, was, was it would, have been, would be yesterday, I think has a, a good insight on this and hardly surprising that the Bush administration would be, you know, uh, another fraud, a fraudulent piece of legislation from the Bush administration, which they're touting the, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, some story about it that has nothing to do with the truth. Uh, so this uh, completes the uh, our our hour this week for uh, left out here on uh, WRCT. We'll be away for uh, we'll be away uh, on for vacation a for a couple of for a couple of sessions. We'll be back in January in the beginning of the semester. Uh, our, our, I, we don't know yet, but presumably our regular our regular slot on Tuesdays. So to all of our listeners, uh, happy holidays uh, uh, and enjoy yourselves over the over the break. And we will be back uh, next semester. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>